2: This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor. What's gone wrong with British politics? Most people would tell you it's the fault of the young. Left-wing teachers turning out left-wing students who sit there chanting, Oh, Jeremy Corbyn, as their messiah takes to the stage. But a new report from the Legatum Institute suggests that we've got it exactly wrong. In fact, it's so much worse than any Conservatives thought. The views of... The Corbynites, the view that uh, capitalism is bad, that public ownership is good, are in fact entrenched right across society. I'm joined by the authors of uh, this this new report, Matthew Elias and James Kanagasorium, to talk about just why things have gone so wrong. Hello. Hi. Hi. hi So, um, Matthew, you are, of course, the founder of the Taxpayers Alliance and the CEO of Vote Leave, so therefore the man who, who brought us Brexit, and James is a senior uh, analyst at uh, Populous, the, the research company who have actually, actually carried out this research. So let me, let me start by reading you um, something you say sort of quite, quite early on, um, which sort of really did strike me. We find that on almost every issue, the public tends to favour non-free market ideals rather than those of the free market. Instead of an unregulated economy, the public favour regulation. Instead of companies striving for profit, they want businesses to be socially responsible. Instead of privatised water, electricity, gas and railway sectors, they want public ownership. The capitalism brand is in crisis. It is seen as selfish, greedy and corrupt. And um, it compares negatively to public association with liberalism, socialism and indeed patriotism so what what prompted you to actually look into this stuff in the first place well
0: it 's really the um, general election, and of course, you know, nobody was really fully expecting the result that came out of it with the um, hung parliament and um, After that, we felt as a, an institute we really need to actually understand you know, what the public were thinking you know it 's very easy to um, Right up the election campaign as being solely about perhaps the manifesto or the Conservative Party machine or how the grassroots worked. But I think you also actually need to look at where public opinion is at the moment. So we um, commissioned uh, populists to do this landscape poll for us, to actually really work out, you know, where do the public s- stand on all sorts of issues? You know, what sort of public are we dealing with? Now, at the Legatum Institute, we are big believers that, uh, in taking people from the path from poverty right through to prosperity. And we believe that key aspects of that are um, entrepreneurship, you know, competition, uh, free trade, these sort of free enterprise ideas. So we need to actually know, you know, are these ideas popular in the UK? Where do we stand with the public in this sort of post-Brexit, um, post-election atmosphere?
2: Yes, I should have said you are actually now a senior fellow at Legatum uh, as, as yeah. one of your many hats. Yeah, um, and and yes, and so and what you found well, I mean, I've got, got the thing in front of me that um, you know capitalism is seen as, is associated with the words greedy, corruptive, greedy, corrupt, selfish, mm. dangerous, divisive, mm. and that this holds true pretty much across society and and across age groups.
0: It very much does, and I think it's important to re- realise it's not just the. Uh, the word capitalism, I think he's. used to well, say, that, okay. That was going to be
2: one of my questions. Can't we just call it, you know, <laughs> Exactly.
0: <laughs> think of a new word. You know, will it change what people think? No, we did, you know, dozens of questions in this poll to actually look at all sorts of different aspects of public policy. And generally speaking, James will be able to speak more to this uh, than I can. Generally speaking, you know, people prefer the state interventionist regulatory side of the spectrum rather than the free enterprise, you know, low taxes, low regulation side of things.
1: Yeah, that's that, that's exactly right. Um, we were wary that in polling, just the word capitalism, whether we, that was just a, an artifact rather than a kind of substantive fact that, that people are actually getting quite negative towards kind of free market, open market ideals. So we very carefully broke out all the different components, as it were, of a free enterprise. So again, we were looking at CEO pay, for example, and wage caps, Regulation, uh, the issue of zero hours contracts, worker representation on boards, home ownership, how people view profit, and what was very striking is that on all these components, there was def- the weight of public opinion was definitely away from the free market or the open market, and perhaps really only on the issue of austerity and public spending were the public opinion in the
2: middle. Well, I, I, and I think that ties into one of the findings of the report, isn't it? That that where people where the conservative the traditional conservative message still resonant, resonates is is on the sort of more authoritarian side. It's on the so people are and in fact there's a fascinating chart in your thing which shows that the Brexit vote was not, you know it was not determined by. Um, by economics, that, you know, that people, you know, people's attitudes with economics, they're sort of spread across the thing. But there's a really clear divide between people who are socially authoritarian and, and socially liberal.
1: That's exactly right. There's a part of the report where effectively we create two components um, out of people's responses to a number of questions. And one of those is a kind of social liberal index, and the other one is a kind of economic index. And actually, what we discovered is that these run across each other, they're not related. And what that means is effectively when we're looking at something like the Brexit votes or in fact a whole host of other issues, welfare welfare or perhaps immigration or in fact uh, views on jail and and things like that, we see that people's uh, opinions broadly break across a social liberal line that's very strongly correlated to age and um, levels of education. What was really fascinating, though, this report is about primarily about capitalism and, and open markets. And what was very interesting there is that instead of uh, opinion perhaps getting, as it were, more free market as you got older, what we discovered is that across the piece, young to old, if they couldn't find unity over Brexit, they certainly did over the issue of open
2: markets. Yeah, so let's take an example here. I mean, public support for nationalizing trains. Um, now, it's 76% of the public like that idea. It's 76 percent of 18 to 34 year olds. It's 76 percent of those over 35. It's it's 86 percent of Labour voters, but it's 65 percent of Conservative voters. You know, the, 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 this the, there is not a a, a segment of the, of the public mm. ho- crying out for mm. in defence of Southern Rail. Exactly, and when people, if you look back to the election, um, I remember
0: different um, politicians talking about you know, Jeremy Corbyn's nationalisation programme and taking us back to the 80s and how this would be a terrible thing. Well, the 70s. Whereas, 70s even. Whereas, um, as we now see from this research, actually some people would have heard what he was talking about, nationalisation. They
2: actually... I rather like the idea of that. Yeah, because it's it's not just about the utilities, is it? You say that fifty percent, exactly fifty percent of the public favour and oppose nationalising the banks, and you can actually find takers for you know pretty much nationalising pretty much anything from travel agents to internet companies.
1: Yeah, that's that's uh, exactly right. I mean, you've got conservative voters, twenty seventeen conservative voters, who as a majority support the nationalisation of water, electricity, gas, and railway, and it shows that those what what the Conservative Party thought as quite potent arguments. Uh, that the Labour Party was stuck in a time warp where, where it was in fact the opposite. They just simply reminded a lot of people that uh, the Conservatives were perhaps quite f- far away from the centre of opinion on on economic issues.
2: I, I, I suppose the, the argument has always been, it, as it was with Ed Miliband you know, and actually Michael Howard, each individual policy can be popular, but when you put them together and put a certain badge on it, then people sort of suddenly go, oh.
0: And it's fair to say that if you look at... Um, James have the exact stats on this, but it's not in this poll... If you look at overall economic competence, I think it's fair to say the Conservatives are still ahead of Labour on that issue.
2: Yes, that's, exa- that's
1: exactly right. But I uh, think over the issue where, where I think the Conservatives may have fallen short in terms of the economy is over the issue of motives. Um, so yes, people believe that they were competent, and I think that's very strongly related to views on austerity, which is a lot of people still think that mm. government spending can't uh, run out of control. But there were issues over, as it were, economic motives, People questioning why the Conservatives were coming up with the policies that they were. I mean, I saw a, a statistic that something like 69% of um, Labour voters in 2017 opted for the party because they trusted in the motives of the party. And that, it, that figure was a lot lower for the Conservative Party.
2: And I guess one of the questions is, is how, which is it's hard to tell from this research, but you, you may have an idea from other stuff, is what sort of timescale are we looking at for this? Is it a sudden thing or is it something which is developed gradually?
1: No, this isn't a sudden thing. We we tried to make that quite clear in the report. W- what we're not saying is that public opinion has taken a sharp turn to the left. Uh, I think what we're seeing now is a uh, delayed reaction and a delayed realisation that actually public opinion on economic matters is quite a lot further to the left than we realised. So, for example, um, the uh, British Social Attitudes Survey, which comes out every year, tracks mm. how people... Uh, think the balances between government spending and tax and whether they would like spending to rise and tax to rise or spending to fall and tax to fall and actually were not at historic highs um, in the under the Labour governments particularly in the midpoint at around 2005 to 2006 there was actually more support for government spending than there is now I think what we're seeing though is a is the gap between the commentariat and where the public public opinion is. And partly that's
2: about austerity or perception of austerity, that's about the financial crisis, real wages, all the... It's not just perception of austerity, actually. I've been looking into the statistics
1: on this, and actually beliefs about whether tax tax rises uh, should occur or not is very strongly aligned with uh, the uh, percentage of public spending as GDP. And they track each other perfectly. And uh, public spending as a percentage of GDP is now around forty percent, which is quite a bit lower than it was um, some four or five years ago. Even though, of course, public debt is going up and we still, there is still a deficit. Mm. But the point is, is that tolerance for uh, less spending proportionally is waning. Precisely, probably, I would argue at the moment where that it, it, we still need, uh, as it were, limits over that.
2: Yeah, I and mean, this is actually something John Curtis talked about with us. Um, on, on capex a, a few months ago the, the idea that it's always cyclical that you know mm. it, yeah yeah uh, you know, people there's a, it's a sort of homeostasis uh, going on what would be your sort of your suggested response to this so i'm really interested that matthew is is uh the author of this and is, is here with us because there's something you and i've discussed in uh in, in private um which i'm glad i've got you here because i've been so tempted to, to to use it as my own <laughs> line so, so i can at last now attribute it to its to its author which is that everyone says that brexit which you uh helped bring about was a was a right wing phenomenon. Um, that's how it's seen. The evil Tories are doing evil things to the, to the country in pursuit of their evil free market ambitions. I mean, the, the point you've made is that actually Brexit was one on a, on a left wing prospectus. It was one on the, this report's prospectus. You know, your message was not we, 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 you know, we will save 350 million a week and use it to give everyone a tax cut. It was we will take 350 million a week and, and spend it on the NHS.
0: That is very true. You know, there are all sorts of reasons why people voted um, leave. You know, many people were attracted by the um, the sovereignty argument mm-hmm. and taking back control and issues like that. Um, you know, there were some people who were interested in the migration argument too. But when you look at the um, what we had on the side of the bus and like you're saying, you know, we spend £350 pounds a week, which, which, by the, which
2: by the way, I I, I oppose utterly as a, as a statistic. And we, we've had this <laughs> argument before. We've had uh, the argument before. Um, but
0: in a sense, that was a message on the left. But I think the Brexit victory was seen to be a, a, a result of the right, a win for the right. So fast-forwarding by a year to the general election, in a sense, perhaps people shouldn't be so surprised about the result.
1: Right, I, I, again, I would agree absolutely with Matthew. I mean, some commentators have ter- got the term Lexit, you know, left-wing Brexit. And I think, you know... This isn't a discussion over Brexit, but, you know, a lot of things were very deliberately positioned for centre-left voters. Um, so, you know, you had red logos, you know, Gisela Stewart fronting the campaign, uh, using the NHS logo. These were all triggers for uh,
2: voters who are perhaps on the economic uh, and in in fact in your your very first launch video um which featured sort of pound pound- t- hospitals turning into pound notes and fluttering away away to Brussels, you were sort of saying you know we there was a whole this whole list of things we could spend we could spend this money on and then a sort of apologetic cough and or or tax cuts and, you know, it was like we could we could help the n h s we could build high speed rail we could make our schools cathedrals or, or you know
1: I think this because Matthew re- re- realized I think where the kind of center ground of public opinion is I mean there's been a lot of conversation about where is the center ground and you know my view is on social issues um it actually is probably quite a bit further to the right than many commentators have really well, it's
2: interesting that now uh, gay marriage seems to be completely accepted that yeah. was um, there's a 20% yeah. Yeah. lead on, on that in your in your work.
1: um ex- exactly yeah but, but issues like that aside. Um, I think that the public opinion on social issues is, is, is quite a lot further to the right than p- many people realise, and actually on economic issues, much further to, to the left. Um, and, and in fact, the kind of consensus—you know—we talk about it a bit in the report, but the kind of Blairite New Deal, Clinton-esque centrist consensus of kind of um, open markets and social liberalism—that you know, you know, personally, that's what I support. But actually, I think it's a, its not a—it's not particularly a very
2: popular view at the minute. So, so we, we've been speaking up until, until now as though the, the public is a sort of is sort of homogenous that um, there is a there is public opinion like a kind of uh, there is some, something out there that we can capture, but that, that's obviously not the case. You know, um, as our discussion just now on three hundred fifty million pounds showed. You know, that we people are different and they believe different things and they react different ways to different different messages. And so, one of the other things you've done in this report is, is break down the country i mean was this uh, just the uk the uk is or just england by the way I, I uh, this
1: is a uk electorate yeah. so we
2: yeah we um broke out the uk um population rather
1: than electorates into uh five groups using a kind of segmentation process called latent class analysis it's a kind of um industry standard way of basically separating out a population based on uh attitudinal similarities so you you're basically finding clusters of
2: opinions which yeah. correlate to each other that's exactly right yeah and uh, yes and so what were the what were, what were your findings i think well first of all there were five groups and i think with
1: with 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 um, statistical procedures like this actually they they turn out to be more of a, an art than a science i mean there's any number of ways that you can cut the uk population into uh, five six seven eight doesn't matter but i think what what we found were again very interesting groups of people that were that quite uh, differ quite widely on both the economic spectrum and the social spectrum, and the, the key point here is that if economic views and social views are unrelated, then actually it's possible to have a huge number of combinations of opinions on those things, and and that's kind of what the segmentation brings out. So we have, for example, there's a group called Left Behind. Mm-hmm which is a, a kind of a small segment around, I think, 7%, which consists of predominantly Leave voters, but also extremely economically left-wing voters. These voters, for example, don't, may not have a party that naturally fits their views, uh, but they are definitely a segment of the population. Um, you know, that's more like De Linke, for example, in, in Germany. Um, And then we also have cosmopolitan critics. Um, You'll have to excuse the names. (laughs) But um, (laughs) that's 16% of the population. uh, Perhaps uh, an archetype that we're all quite familiar with. London, left-leaning, remain-leaning, extremely socially liberal, but also very uh, far left on on economic issues. Um, And then, of course, we have... uh, Three bigger segments. So we have um, every segmentation always has a middle group that's called disengaged something um, because there are a very large number of people that are disengaged. And we have disengaged pessimists who broadly are are in the middle on a lot of issues but not particularly engaged with them. Uh, and then we have uh, optimistic centrists, which are people that are broadly but not completely free market. And that's about uh, 29% of the population. And uh, perhaps more right-leaning uh, you know the kind of David Cameron, yeah. Archetype. I was going to say Cameron yeah. voters, are, yeah, exactly. And then right of centre traditionalists. This is I, I would put this is the kind of Liam Fox, I think, archetype of, of voter, which is quite far to the right on social issues, very far to the right on economic ones. I think they were the only set segments. Correct me if I'm wrong, Matthew, that were uh, quite strongly in favour of free market ideals across the different yeah. components that we were looking. Yes, at. though even
2: they would want to nationalise the water companies.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that, this, is the kind of, uh, this is the kind of really shocking thing that even when you break out the population into pro or anti-open uh, market uh, on that kind of spectrum, you still find support for nationalization across a lot of key industries and even the most kind of economically you know, right-wing segments. I mean, this, this, is, this is the thing. Even in home territory, for those of us that support open markets, the, the, um, the consensus for all uh, that is, is very, very weak.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: What the hell do you do about it? Because th- th- this isn't just about saying, "Oh, yes, well, well you know, th- this is what the public believes, so so government should believe it too," which is, you know, quite you know, what politicians are often accused of. I mean, all three of us, I think, would genuinely uh, would say, um, and we could point to stacks of evidence for this that you know open liberal free market economies are the best way to go and you can differ about you know the the, where, you know, the, the level of government intervention there the level of government investment you know but broadly speaking what has delivered a, prosperity to an awful lot of people around the world and in this country mm-hmm. as well is the is the end is the kind of the ideas we're talking about so what do you do do you is this opinion is there a magic bullet to try to Explain that to people. Is it a case of getting into government and then trying to do as much of it as you can without upsetting people, or do you just go, you know, what we have to deal with the electorate as it as it is? I think we've got to stop making the case again, and we had
0: you know spectacularly good timing for the, this report uh, in the sense that um, you know Theresa May has done a speech in the, at the Bank of England, you know, celebrating free enterprise and job creation and wealth creation, and mm. you know all the principles we talk about in this uh, report. And I think having politicians to make that case is um, incredibly important because, you know, when you have, um, you know, early this week, you know, John McDonnell in his speech talking about um, nationalisation and talking about PFI and issues like that, we know from this research some of those ideas are incredibly popular. But then when he talked about how they'd started wargaming about how it might lead to a run on the pound and what they would do about that, we've got to start making the case by pointing out the effect of these policies. And I think that will help bring people our way. I think the second point is that we shouldn't fall into the trap of automatically always defending the status quo. So if they're saying you should nationalise certain things, we shouldn't base our case around the fact that all the privatised industries at the moment are running perfectly
2: and brilliantly yeah. and shouldn't be changed in any way. And, and besides, they've given a, a very large cheque to help us have a nice uh, a nice fringe meeting at Conservative Party Conference. Right.
0: Um, we need to actually sort of look at these industries, actually work out which ones are working well, which ones are too monopolistic, you know, which ones can we introduce more competition to? And I think this will be sort of stage two of the research, working out how we how, how can we make the case for free enterprise better. We need to think about you know sketch an idea. Um, there are certain aspects of business which are very monopolistic. Um, so the big businesses, some of the ones which rely on regulation to, in, uh, enforce their position versus the elements of business that nobody has a problem with in the country. The more, um, you know, the SMEs, the, you know, the entrepreneurs, the, mm. the people who mortgage their home, set up a business and try and sort of disaggregate the two.
1: It's funny when I think about, you know, h- how do we move the dial on this? Because the dial needs to be moved quite, quite a long way, um, I always think of the old anecdote, you know, uh, don't tell me you're funny, tell me a joke. Um, and I think in the case of open markets and, and free enterprise, the government needs to do that. I, th- I think the case can be made, but I'm not sure that copies of Hayek and talking about the Laffer curve um, will move the dial on this. I think what needs to happen is actual policies um, enacted. Um, and I think, you know, it's been said before, but homes, home ownership is is key and one of the, was one of the cornerstones of of Margaret Thatcher's, uh, as it were, conversion of a lot of
2: Middle England social conservatives to open markets. So, I mean, you've written for us on CapEx before about how, how, well, so actually I've written it, but based on our discussions about how Homeownership is and you know, is is one of the things that can that kind of inexorably converts people into a into a Tory. If you've got a nice house, if you're living in a, in a nice job, and you're living in the suburbs, then mm. you know you you sort of you sort of find yourself slowly putting the uh, the kind of Jeremy Corbyn T-shirts further and further back in the wardrobe. <laughs> yeah, they, and, uh, they they
1: get put up they get put up in the attic, and the picket fence goes up. I mean, that's it's 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 you know voting Tory is 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 quite often associated with a number of markers, which I think your article discusses. Um, know marriage uh, perhaps moving out to the suburbs owning your own house um and frankly often when we hear conservative politicians you know they talk in the language of consultations and white papers um the thing about jeremy corbyn is that he speaks in very plain english yes there might be questions over the costings yes there might be questions over delivery and procedural things but actually his ambitions are high and i think what, what, what I think could move the dial is a, a conservative party and, and perhaps even a liberal democrat party that sets its ambitions extremely high and starts speaking in plain, clear language about house
2: building. And so, one interesting angle to your your research or, you, or Matthew's work at Legatum is it's not just about um, it's not just about the, the UK. You're, you're sort of researching populism worldwide, um, and in fact, you. Um, <laughs> I apologise for bringing this up, but your last appearance on CapEx uh, was to reassure us that the Germans were solid, sensible and prosperous and, uh, and we could accept, expect no shocks and surprises in their election, which they then promptly uh, ignored your, your sage advice and uh, voted for AFD. It was interesting. I went back to
0: um, my research after the uh, result and um, actually I think what I said stacked up. I think Merkel polled less than we thought she would and uh, AFD got slightly more than we thought we would. they would. We went back to the polling, and actually, if you look at the some of these international polls, you'll notice from your work at um, Populous, mm. often they're sort of several months out of date once they've all been collated together. And so the polling we had compared to, comparing attitudes towards um, globalisation in Germany, UK, France, Netherlands, was from um, a June 2017 paper. And i guess guessing the polling was probably done in the early part of the year. So I think things are changing in Germany. Yeah, I mean, and
1: yeah, I, mean I, I, I didn't... I haven't uh, commented on or looked at the German election, but I, what you know, what I will say is that the fact that it was a surprise, I think, says a, uh, a lot not only about the result, but actually media coverage. I exactly. mean, the results were not far, far off. They were a standard deviation out from poll estimates. I mean, politics is a probability game, not a certainty game. So I, I think a lot of it was people had assumed that Merkel was going to win and win comfortably, and that was actually disjunct from the fact that... She, from what the numbers were saying, which was if you flex things a few points here and there, particularly with the German yeah. system,
2: but I mean this is, a, this is an interesting sort of uh, digression, but' given you your in, in polling it's you know we went through a stage where the polls just got it wrong, uh, you know election after election, and that led to, and so that led to sort of an incredible suspicion of the polls, and now we've actually just been through a sequence of events where the polls actually got it right, but they were so contrary to received wisdom about what could possibly happen, viz. brexit. Viz Trump, Germany, and actually, you know, Corbyn versus versus May, that uh, everyone say, oh, no, 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 you no, know, it, 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 it's problems with the model.
1: Well, my view on this is that uh, polls are one tool of many uh, that people use to forecast elections. I mean, I was reading Hillary Clinton's new biography, and she talks about, in the American system, uh, a tripartite uh, kind of research program. Polls is w- one thing. Data analytics and data science is the second, and focus groups is the third. And, you know, those are keys, as it were, that help you unlock the public opinion at large. I think over here in in the UK, we have a slight obsession with the first, which is uh, simply polls that come out, uh, with very little attention. They're easy headlines, easy headline. exactly. And free, and it's easier media consumption, and there's, a, you know, you can talk about, you can ignore things like margin of error and get a good... A good story out of it, but actually, it's the data science, it's the data analytics, and actually, the qualitative stuff—sitting down, doing a focus group, listening to what people are saying—that that is just as insightful. But again, it's not; those aren't things that commentators or uh, large parts of the media would have access to.
2: Yes, I mean, I remember during an election campaign uh, being offered the chance to, to to do a focus group and then being told it would be twenty thousand pounds. Thank you very much. It was like, well, yeah, I don't think we can can afford that. Hmm. um but 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 I suppose what I was getting at here is that it's not just a, a UK problem, is it? This um, this sort of disillusionment with the with the system. As it's I, found.
0: I think we're going through into a new phase of politics. Um, you know, we talked earlier about um, you know the 1980s and you know Thatcherism, and of course you had Reagan at the same time, and Roger Douglas in New Zealand. Then you moved into the you know, mid 90s, and you had you know, Tony Blair in the UK mm. and Bill Clinton in America, and. Um, people like Gerhard Schroeder in Germany. Then you uh, that basically, I'd say, continued in a sense that third way approach, generally speaking, until the latest phase, which is I'm not quite sure I we define it yet. Is it the rise of populism? Uh, populism, or is it uh, an anti-establishment feeling? Or is it definitely sort of Brexit in the UK? But also, there's a left-wing populist element to it.
1: I, I, I think it, if you take the economic and and social spectrums, I think what we're seeing here is is the consensus move to the left on economic issues from where it was. I mean, but Bill Clinton and his New Deal, that's him introducing market reforms now, which the conservatives would be nervous about. And then I guess on the social um, spectrum, you've got uh, movements to, to, to the right, you know, a newfound skepticism and acknowledgement over immigration issues that were simply not. Uh, around. I mean, do you remember Michael Howard's general election campaign, 2005? He was derided for his are-you-thinking-what-we're-thinking posters, whereas I think we live in a in, in a world now where he, he wouldn't necessarily be derided for that.
2: But there's an interesting element here. You just mentioned as a little political structure in Germany. So there's a case that the Republicans in the US were out of step with their base and Trump basically ran away with them because... He was saying all the things which were heresy to people who'd been reading Hayek and Milton Friedman, but actually sounded like solid good sense to the U.S. electorate. Whereas in the U.K., you know, logic, the logical move would be for a Tory basically to ditch all the free market stuff and it'd be run as a sort of, you know, run as a sort of an author, basically an authoritarian protective figure. Which, kind of, which may sort of came close to but you, know, you're, but you, the structure of the Conservative Party means those kind of people can't get to the top of it.
0: I see it differently. I see the move as being one about where you position yourselves. You know, are you part of the establishment, like um, Hillary Clinton uh, was, or Angela Merkel? Or the Remain campaign? Or <laughs> are you an outsider? Are you, you know, running outside the beltway, to use a US term, or you know, outside of SW1, uh, on the side of the people? And actually a classic definition of populism is basically people who you know run on the side of the people and use that rhetoric mm. in their campaigns. And that's why you get you know populists on the uh, right and those on the left, like uh, Mélenchon, or you mentioned uh, the left in Germany, or the green left in um, uh, the Netherlands, or Bernie Sanders in the US. So it's this left-wing populist ph- phenomenon. So really I think it's more about you know, where you position yourselves.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think... That's really interesting. I think what I think what Matthew's been able to exploit quite well in his kind of campaigning career so far, I think you're running out of referendums to run.
2: Uh, is um the status well, the, quo. There's the one on whether we go back in.
1: <laughs> <laughs> is uh well that's for another day. Um, is is this concept of status quo. I don't think you've ever run a campaign where you you you've tried to defend the status quo. It's always been about change, Way to AV. Um, well, no, but I think what you were saying is that, you know, we'll fund, if, you know, don't introduce these charges, otherwise we can't fund. You have that famous advert, you can't fund the midwife. And that's all yeah. It, yeah.
2: And I think but actually, what, you, you, were, you were anti-status quo if you defined the coalition as the status quo. Your, yeah. your whole message was basically, you know, yeah. this, this will guarantee yeah. Nick Clegg is always uh, in Downing uh, Street. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> you, had, you, had painted, you had managed to paint people arguing for proportional, well, AV as yeah, yeah. somehow establishment when they almost definitely were not. It wasn't but, difficult. <laughs> no, I, well, ex- exactly. But um, I think that's an interesting and very much an alternative model to what you were saying about Donald Trump. You know, what did he do differently? I mean, we shouldn't forget he lost the popular vote. Hillary Clinton won the second most votes anyone's ever won in a US presidential election. It was just a very badly distributed vote. Um, so there's been a lot of hand-wringing, I think, about that and, and that loss and how it's the collapse of the American establishment. And I think it is important not to go completely overboard. I mean, what, what a, a trend I've spotted often, I think, uh, you know, I've only been doing working in 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 and around politics since 2014 and before then I worked in the city and one of the things that really struck me is that people people always seem to be fighting the last war <laughs> and and applying the the lessons of the previous campaign and using that as a lens for the next one so again when David Cameron won in 2015 uh, I think a lot of people you know myself included thought okay that's about solid centrism and leadership uh, being the order of the day and you come to the 2016 referendum and that's ripped up and suddenly it's about change and it's about uh, it's about populism it's about taking back control it's about sovereignty and then we get to 2017 and we're thinking you know that you know leave had a huge geographic advantage over remain in terms of how its vote was distributed and everyone thought the consensus was well, of course the Conservatives are going to win UKIP were at 14% and they're now down at five and all those extra votes will deliver loads of seats and turns out that's wrong as well so i think we've got to be really careful here about uh, extrapolating a new model of politics for the fourth time in four
2: years and 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 moving forward with that Mm -hmm. so one final question i guess which echoes something i asked before can the british be brought to love the free markets again or if, if they ever did
0: I think they can, and this will be the next stage of the project. We've diagnosed where public opinion is at the moment. Now we need to work out the um, arguments and messages that really um, resonate with people, and I think they're there. Just going back to John McDonnell's speech again, it all sounded very good when he was talking about nationalisation to people, but people don't want the run on the pound. We need to actually explain to people what the outcomes of the Labour Party's very left-wing populist policies would be.
1: I think I, I, I'm perhaps a little less hopeful than Matthew. I, I, um, I think the the strongest case for the free market and open markets will be a Corbyn government, because um, I think you know the last time that you know what led to a kind of um, backlash and the promotion of free markets was, of course, the, the winter of discontent. It took physical evidence of, of economic mismanagement and bad policies for people to realise. I think it's very hard to demonstrate. Uh, the the, you know, the complex benefits of open markets, without there being evidence to the contrary, and 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 I think we we may be going through a phase where maybe Corbyn gets elected next time, maybe he doesn't, we don't know. But if he does, I think that will be the the clearest and and most and most strong argument for free markets. Yes,
2: although as as with Trump, there's then that question of at what point his you know, of whether his his supporters will just yell that it's, it's a conspiracy and that he was never given a fair chance and. Of course, it was, you know, it was
1: well, the- I, speaking from a personal perspective, I, um, you know, my, my, my dad remembers 1979, the winter of discontent, where, you know, the family politics flipped from Labour to Conservative overnight. Um, and that was a permanent shift. Um, and, and you can see from the data and the statistics that overnight, a cohort and generation of people became Conservative. And much st- and, more so, and stayed, conservative. and stayed conservative, and got more conservative. And actually, what we're seeing now, actually, with a lot, a lot of the older people, is a, is a cohort of people that are uniquely pro-conservative. And I think, personally, I, I think it's it's it, we've got there's a lot of work to do, a lot of research to do, um, but but I think it's going to be a Corbyn government that moves uh, the needle the most. On this.
2: Matthew, James, thank you very much.